What do you think of when you think of the word revolution? Perhaps it's freedom. Maybe it's liberty. Maybe it's a change in government or maybe it's independence. Or maybe you think about war or death or fire and brimstone. Because when we talk about a revolution, I think we have to realize that this often means bloodshed. It doesn't always have to mean bloodshed. I mean, there have been some very successful nonviolent revolutions. Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. come to mind. But more often than not, there is bloodshed. Lots and lots of bloodshed. So the word revolution isn't a word to take lightly. If some words are like feathers and some like bricks, the word revolution would be like an oversized boulder. It's heavy stuff we're dealing with here. Because a revolution is an overtaking and overcoming and more often than not an overpowering and overthrowing of a whole system of government by force often bloody brutal barbaric force when you think of revolution you might conjure images of things burning and people dying that's the highest price for revolutionary change so then the question becomes if revolutions have been one of the norms of human history can all of this disaster and life loss ever be justified? Are people morally justified in taking extreme and violent actions when they are bitterly oppressed and subjugated? That is the question. And that's the question we'll ask throughout this podcast series on the Haitian Revolution, which lasted from 1791 to 1804, establishing Haiti as the world's first independent black republic. And from then, it was a land that any black person could come, no matter their former condition, slave or free, and become a citizen, but a land that was not embraced or recognized as a country after they fought for their independence for more than 60 years after the fact the international community turned their backs on Haiti. Now, the war that gave Haiti its unprecedented independence was a revolution an anti-colonial war and a slave rebellion and a race war all rolled into one it's a very compelling horrific and fascinating story we're about to tell here for 12 long years the enslaved people of haiti rose up for independence in the french colony of saint domingue not since the slave rebellion of Spartacus in Rome had the world seen such fury from those chained in bondage. And that one was 1900 years prior. So it's been a long time since a slave rebellion ever happened like this. This Haitian revolution took the Western world by storm. And it was this Haitian revolution which prompted Thomas Jefferson to say that if we, meaning the Americans, don't do something about our own slave problem, we, quote, shall be the murderers of our own children. Unquote. And what does he mean by this? He means to say that the enslaved people in the United States would rebel in mass as well if they couldn't solve this so-called slave problem. Every plantation owner in the Western world must have gulped in fear as they read the headlines about this revolution. It shaped debates about slavery and fueled the audacity of the abolitionist movement. It was a world history event and it was extremely important. Here's what sociologist W.E.B. Du Bois had to say about the impact of the Haitian Revolution. He says, quote, The role which the great Negro Toussaint called Louis Vuitton played in the history of the United States has seldom been fully appreciated. Representing the age of revolution in America, he rose to leadership through a bloody terror which contrived the Negro problem for the Western Hemisphere intensified and defined the anti-slavery movement became one of the causes and probably the prime one which led to napoleon selling louisiana for a song and finally through the interworking of all these effects rendered more certain the final prohibition of the slave trade by the united states in 1807 unquote so soon after the haitian revolution the united states put a stop to the shipment of human cargo 
from the coastline of Africa. Slavery still went on for quite some time, but they stopped the international slave trade. They didn't want to bring any more black people from Africa over and swell the population with more black people to have a potential revolt. This is the impact. And if the revolution was remarkable, then it indeed produced some remarkable men and women. One of those went by the name Tucson Louvator. He was a man who sought freedom for the black race and he was born a slave himself. He was the pinnacle of the Haitian freedom movement and maybe even the global black freedom movement. It was him who led the people to outgeneral, outsmart this global superpower that was France at that time. And not only France, but two other world superpowers in Britain and Spain. How did this little tiny island rise up to smash and push back these great global giants. We're going to find that out in this podcast. Now, against overwhelming odds, Tucson waged a victorious struggle against his white and mulatto masters. He had a lot of enemies. He was called Old Man Tucson. He didn't even start his public career until he was almost 50 years old. He was barely educated. He was born a slave. But somehow, some way, he was able to pick up these skills of diplomacy and pick his allies, siding with France and then Spain. Then he went back to France and then against Britain, then against France again to fight against their reinstitution of slavery after they had freed the slaves. He made allies out of those who promised to free slavery. That's the running theme. He was a fighter for the liberation of black people. He would not stop until he started this free black republic. Elderly Tucson had the leadership to rally a non-military force of former slaves and train them to defeat the veteran military forces of some of the greatest superpowers on earth. But for embarrassing Napoleon's forces, he paid the ultimate price. Betrayed by some of his allies, he was captured, arrested, and thrown into a cold cell in the French mountains. His wife was tortured. It was in that dungeon, cut off from his family, and all he knew the Tucson died miserably, gone, but never forgotten. This is his story. It's a story of destiny and of slavery and rebellion and freedom and war and atrocity and brutality. It is a story of nations and militaries and anger and fury of love and of sadness and of longing and of dreams. This is the story of the Haitian Revolution. It is the story of Tucson. Louvator. This is the Humanity Archive. Let's get into it. gracious host Jermaine Fowler and today I have a story of history that you may have never heard before but even if you have you've never heard it in the way that I'm going to tell it this is the story of Tucson Louvator this is the story of the Haitian Revolution so if there ever was a morally justified revolution, it may very well have been the one that happened in Haiti. Think about it. If you were enslaved and you were given this opportunity to join a winning revolution to defeat your tormentors, wouldn't you? And it all boils down to this. If people are being treated in a way that violates their right to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. If it violates their right to have authority over their own being and personage, we might say they have a right to revolt. We might say they have a right to rebellion. We might say they have a right to revolution. So to see why this revolution was justified, we have to think about the slave trade. What fueled it? 
The island of Haiti had already been born in the genocide of the native Arawak and Tayano indigenous people. The land fertilized with the blood of countless tens of thousands of men, women, and children from murder, disease. Now this cleared land grew sugarcane. The demand was extremely high in Europe during this time. We know that four-fifths of all sugar sent to Europe was produced in the Caribbean on islands like Haiti. I hate to oversimplify things, but I think about this and I think about the hundreds of thousands of indigenous peoples and black people who died. And I really feel like I should underline the word people. These were human beings. These were families. These were living, breathing people just like you and me. Somebody's mother, father, cousin, etc., etc., right? These people died so that someone in Europe could eat jam and have sweetener for their tea. How ironic is it that some of the sweetest stuff on earth caused some of the bitterest of brutality? So let that sink in like a shipwreck. So we know you've got the sugar plantations that required slave labor. Capitalism, capitalistic pursuits, Euro capitalism, whatever you want to call it. It always needs a labor force and over the years of history that labor force has been treated with more or less disdain disgust and been discarded in a lot of times right human life has been discarded for the pursuit of whatever we might define as success right money plantations back in this time now it's mansions whatever you want to call it no different labor force was expendable back then so we know, again, you got these sugar plantations. They require labor. Haiti then was known as St. Domingue and was the world's most profitable colony in the world. Indeed, one of the most profitable of all the European colonies in the 18th century. So this French population had this high standard of living and it was because they were standing on the backs of black Haitian slaves. Now to every Light there is a darkness and to every up there is a down and slavery was the darkness and slavery was the down. You can't have all this consumption and all this excess and all of this wealth and all of this splendor without having some atrocity. And when we talk about slavery here, we're not talking about the sanitized, deodorized and fictionalized version of slavery where people sang and picked cotton and were treated okay. I'm talking about the terrifying and inhumane realities of slave life. For so many, their lives were filled with the chilly sense of dread about the bone chilling horrors that haunted their very existence. And I'm going to go to the West Indian born historian C.L.R. James, who will be our guide through a lot of this revolutionary story. And if you get one book on the Haitian Revolution, get his. It's called The Black Jacobins. And it gives us the backstory on what slavery looked like so that we can see what prompted this revolution. What conditions did the black population of Haiti live under which caused them to be so tormented that they rose up and said enough is enough we must push back against this about slavery he says quote the stranger in san domingo was awakened by the cracks of the whip the stifled cries and the heavy groans of the negroes who saw the sun rise only to curse it for its renewal of their labors and their pains he goes on into this account of a swiss traveler who said about a gang of enslaved people working, the Swiss traveler says, quote, They were about a hundred men and women of different ages, all occupied in digging ditches in a cane field, the majority of them naked or covered with rags. The sun shone down with full force on their heads, sweat rolled from all parts of their bodies, a mournful silence reigned. Exhaustion was stamped on every face, but the hour of rest had not yet come. Several foremen armed with whips moved periodically between them, giving stinging blows to all who, worn out by fatigue, were compelled to take a rest. It goes on. To cow them into necessary docility required calculated brutality and terrorism. Worked like animals, the slaves were housed like animals in huts built around a square planted with provisions and fruits. The slaves received the whip with more certainty and regularity than they received their food. 
There was no ingenuity the fear or a depraved imagination could devise which was not employed to break their spirit. Irons on the hands and feet, blocks of wood that the slaves had to drag behind them wherever they went. The tin-plated mask designed to prevent the slaves from eating the sugar cane, the iron collar. Salt, pepper, cinders, aloes, and hot ashes were poured onto bleeding wounds. Mutilations were common. Limbs, ears. Their masters poured burning wax on their arms and hands and shoulders, emptied the boiling cane sugar over their heads, burned them alive, roasted them on fires, filled them with gunpowder, and blew them up with a match. Unquote. I have to take pause for a second there. Moment of silence for those who suffered that atrocity. And I didn't even read every part of it because it's got way more detailed in CLR James's book. Left a little bit out. So if you want to go back and read all the full atrocity, go back and read his account. And that's bad enough, right? And James is far from done there put in this other little snippet that he said that was very profound to me and he said this and just think about the humanity and the statement and how he he pulls from history the humanity of the black enslaved people of saint domingue when he says quote the difficulty was that though one could trap them like animals transport them in pens work them alongside an ass or a horse and beat them both with the same stick stable them and starve them they remained despite their black skins and curly hair quite invincibly human beings unquote i just love how james then goes on to provide evidence that these incidents were not isolated because a lot of people will try to justify slavery in some weird ways they'll say well you know, these were isolated incidents. These were the equivalent of serial killer, sociopathic mentality people who treated their slaves just like a, a modern serial killer would treat a victim. And the majority of people were just trying to make some money. You know, they just had their plantations and they treated their slaves fairly well. But James presents evidence after evidence after evidence that goes against this statement, including writings that phrase a lot of these atrocities in ways that show up again and again to let you know that they're recurring. They're not just isolated incidents. Now, here I just want to take a minute to clarify that I don't tell these horrific aspects of these stories to arouse the pathetic. Though history can often seem like a never-ending massacre and a slaughterhouse full of pain and bruises and scars. Here at the Humanity Archive, I explore these stories to also explore the resistance. To explore the healing and the reckoning. To explore those who through all of this still dreamed. And made attempts at endless human possibilities. Who made attempts for freedom. That's what this is about. So while I'm doing this. I hope to arouse in you some sympathy and empathy. And hope you identify with the frustrations and humanity of those stories that I'm telling. The indomitable humanity of the Haitians was diamond tough. These were people with a deep spirit of freedom spurred by the spiritual practice of voodoo. The Haitian African cult. Now, what's interesting about voodoo is that there is no written book. There's no Bible. There's no Quran. So not only is this a living and breathing way of life through this religion, the masters, they didn't have access to it. So then the black Haitians used this in order to humanize and politically organize themselves. They found their humanity in this religion, tying back to their ancestors in Africa under the nose of the master, cleverly hiding it and then veiling it in Catholicism. So master walks by, asks slave what they're doing. I'm just practicing my Catholic faith. But they had hidden their pantheon of gods in the Catholic saints and there was one chant in the community steeped in the voodoo tradition that must have been a very ominous thing to hear from a white planter because they had picked up what it meant a chant that white planters tried to stamp out but they couldn't and it goes hey hey bomba hell hell kanga by fire te kanga mone delay kanga do kila kanga li what does that mean? We swear to destroy the whites 
and all that they possess. Let us die rather than fail to keep this vow. Unquote. The Haitian slaves were singing this song for over 200 years. It may seem harsh from our lens. It may seem very ominous and very disturbing. But if someone owned you, beat your mother, raped your sister, and sold your father, you might be singing this song too. Now, some believe if you say something long enough, it will manifest itself into reality, and the Haitian Revolution may be a good case to prove that. Now, before we move much further, we have to separate American slavery from Haitian slavery or the slavery in the Caribbean on the island of Haiti because they had some very distinct differences in policies, and a lot of them are going to come up here in very significant ways in our story. Number one was in the West Indies, enslaved people constituted about 80 to 90 percent of the population. This is the reason that the United States wanted to ban the international slave trade. It wasn't because they were just trying to be nice. They didn't want America to become 80 to 90 percent populated by enslaved black people so they can rise up in America and cause a Haitian revolution in America. I wonder what that would have looked like. What would America look like today had the slaves been able to host and enact a successful revolution in the way that Haiti did. So if you compare this 80 to 90% in the American South, only about a third of the population was slaves, which is still a pretty significant number, but not 80, 90%. And we're talking about revolution, and that's a lot of muscle for a revolution. Think about it. They outnumbered the white population on the island by a factor of 10 to 1. And number two was the French did not encourage the reproduction of life among slaves. Their system of slavery was one of the most fiendishly brutal on earth. They literally had a policy to work and beat slaves to death, not caring to replenish the slave population through children. Many enslaved people died within a few years. But the French paid it. No, never mind. They just thought it easier to go send ships back and forth continuously to bring more and more enslaved people from the African coast as we will see later this contributed to their demise you see enslaved people in Saint Domingue remain largely African with all the warrior spirit and the religion that didn't say obey your masters like the enslaved people in America had through the Bible this would be a crucial key in their victory and last but not least number three Haiti didn't have this one drop rule like America where you were considered black even if you were mixed. Haiti functioned on a caste system. At the top of the social and political ladder was the white elite, the Grand Blancs. Then you had the poor whites, the Petit Blancs. At the bottom of the social structure were the enslaved black people, the Noirs, and most of them had been born in Africa. And then between the white elite and the enslaved black Noirs, there was a third group. The freedmen, the Afranches, most of them were descended from unions between slave masters and slaves. And I won't say unions, I will say the abuse of slave master to slave. So these mulatto freedmen inherited land from their white fathers. They became relatively wealthy and they owned slaves. So Toussaint was going to have to fight them, too, for the most part. These mulattoes, they had a very good social standing, but they had no political rights. So they were more wealthy than the Petit Blancs, who were very jealous of them because they had the wealth. Even though the Petit Blancs, you know, had, they had the social standing from being white above them. So there's all these clashes going on. Now, I think about this caste system, and it's an old way of social organization. It's been around for century after century after century, millennia. And it's still around, disturbingly. But you have this prejudice and it's intermingled with racial slavery and this all combines as a recipe for disaster. French historian Paul Fragosi wrote this. He said, quote, whites, mulattoes and blacks loathed each other. The poor whites couldn't stand the rich whites. The rich whites despised the poor whites. The middle class whites were jealous of the aristocratic whites. The whites born in France looked down upon the locally born whites. Mulattoes envied the whites, despised the blacks, and were despised by the whites. Free Negroes brutalized those who were still slaves. Haitian born blacks regarded those from Africa as savages. Everyone, quite rightly, lived in terror of everyone else. Haiti was hell, but Haiti was rich. 
unquote. I think that sums up the situation quite well. So Toussaint was born a slave, but he gained his freedom to become part of the affranches or the small privileged class. His former master maintained a close relationship with Toussaint and he was very much connected to high French society. His former master even gave Toussaint the use of five slaves to cultivate a plot of land. Toussaint became a devout Catholic. He learned some French and some Latin. He learned to draw and was given the job of coachman. And he was made the steward of all livestock, a position usually preserved for white men. So Toussaint, in essence, was becoming French. And for a while, he took on the ugly characteristics of his oppressors like slave ownership. But there were some characteristics that he took on that I'm sure the planters probably would have stopped had they known what they were going to turn into. Like this ability to read. Well, like Frederick Douglass once said, reading makes a man unfit to be a slave. And I would add to that in Toussaint's case, reading not only makes a man unfit to be a slave, but reading can make a man want to fight against slavery. Toussaint was about to start reading some revolutionary stuff, particularly the book by the priest Abbe Reynal, the French writer and preacher who spoke about revolution as if it was some type of biblical necessity. So think about this future revolutionary leader, Toussaint, reading this passage. Reynal says, quote, If self-interest alone prevails with nations and their masters, there's another power. Nature speaks in louder tones than philosophy or self-interest. Already there are established two colonies of fugitive Negroes whose treaties and power protect from assault. Those lightnings announce the thunder. A courageous chief only is wanted. Where is he? That great man whom nature owes her vexed, oppressed, and tormented children. Where is he? He will appear, doubt it not. He will come forth and raise the sacred standard of liberty. This venerable signal will gather around him the companions of his misfortune. More impetus than the torrents. They will everywhere leave the indelible traces of their just resentment. Everywhere, people will bless the name of the hero who shall have reestablished the rights of the human race. Everywhere will they raise trophies in his honor. Now, Toussaint may have read this and said, hey, he's talking about me. I could be that guy. I'm capable. I could do this. So I think this probably sparked something in him reading this. And then there's one more fascinating fact about 80s history that will play heavily into the story here. And I just want to talk briefly about the Maroon community. These are enslaved people who found their condition so intolerable they ran off, finding the courage to escape in the face of deathly consequences if they were caught. One contemporary colonist said this about the Maroons. He said, quote, Maroonage, or the desertion of the black slaves in our colonies since they were founded, has always been regarded as one of the possible causes of the colony's destruction. The ministers should be informed that there are inaccessible or reputedly inaccessible areas in different sections of our colony which serve as retreat and shelter for maroons. It is in the mountains and in the forest that these tribes of slaves establish themselves and multiply invading the plains from time to time, spreading alarm, always causing great damage to the inhabitants. 1775 memoir on the state of Maroons in St. Domingue. Again, the revolution had been going on for a long time. Sometimes a revolution just looks a little different. It looks like using your feet to escape. And these Maroons... They lived in the hillsides and they lived anywhere they could away from the white control. And enough of them did this. that They were able to conduct guerrilla war campaigns on the island sugar and coffee plantations periodically. They raided. They poisoned. They were a constant nuisance to the plantation owners. Those white owners often used mulatto officers to go after these maroons and thus strengthen that relationship of hatred. 
Although the numbers in these bands grew large, sometimes into the thousands, they generally didn't have the leadership and strategy to accomplish large-scale objectives. But one of the most prominent was named Francois Mackendall, a voodoo priest who'd be worth exploring in his own right. But here is someone who harassed Haitian plantation owners for six long years. Surely this emboldened and strengthened the spirit of revolt and rebellion. Surely it was part of the awareness of the leader who was Toussaint Louverture. So I want to pause here for just one minute and I ask you again this critical question. Are violent revolutions ever justified? Now, if you say yes, then purely from a logical standpoint, you are saying that bloodshed caused by revolution is justified. You're saying that fighting fire with fire is sometimes justified. If you said yes, you wouldn't be alone. Englishman Jay Fillmore agreed when he wrote about the justification for revolution years before the Haitian Revolution. He wrote, quote, And so all the black men now in our plantations who are by unjust force deprived of their liberty and held in slavery as they have none upon earth to appeal to may lawfully repel that force with force and to recover their liberty, destroy their oppressors. And not only so, but it is the duty of others, white as well as blacks, to assist those miserable creatures if they can in their attempts to deliver themselves out of slavery and to rescue them out of the hands of their cruel tyrants, unquote. That's what you call an argument. That's what you call a sound argument. That's what you call a compelling argument. We have an obligation by this logic to help those who are in an oppressed state. So we've answered the logical question, but then we have the moral and ethical question, which becomes how far is this bloodshed allowed to go? When does the killing of the oppressor end or does it? Because we'll see here that Toussaint Louverture, he proved to be humane and he was free. Somehow he was free from the spirit of revenge and vengeance. And he actually protected a lot of white people and saved them from other angry black people who wanted to kill them and do all types of harm to them. And in, in morality, what a lot of people could have handled back then you know with the spirit of vengeance and his predecessor for instance Desalines he was not so kind more on that later but keep that question in mind how far can it go all during this time you had the free mulattoes appealing for their own interests other than the slave raids by the maroons black African slaves were not really into the official conflict up to this point because there was some conflict going on and the mulattoes they were already in the conflict and they were fighting for their freedom in the way of they wanted political rights maybe to them they owned slaves like whites they dressed like whites their fathers were whites they spoke French like whites and some were even three quarters white But in this French racial caste system, they would never be equal to whites. And they knew it. And when a few of their legal appeals failed, when they tried to appeal in France, those like mulatto planter and aristocrat Vincent Ogue rebelled. Now, he was a wealthy free man of color in the 1790, and he decided to demand the right to vote under the Declaration of the Rights of Man. And when the colonial governor refused, he let a 300 man insurgency in the area around the cap fighting to end racial discrimination against mulattoes in the area you'll hear about the city of Le cap a lot it's going to be a site of a great many revolutionary battles in this story but it's interesting to me that the mulattoes of the 18th century fought so hard to be a part of white society compared to how people consider mixed race american identity as black almost by default now and I think this is because society identifies them as black and makes people say that they experience the same oppression as black people. So they identify as black. There's a solidarity of oppression. Mulattoes in Haiti didn't have this. They felt themselves better. So why did the mulattoes identify with the white French so adamantly? But O was captured in 1791 and brutally executed by being broken on the wheel. Then he was beheaded some very brutal capital punishment going on back then broken on the wheel just essentially means being laid down and bludgeoned to death starting from the feet and the ankles and the legs breaking bone after bone after bone after bloody bone and then they would just leave you there 
some people stayed alive for two to three days afterward looking down at their bloody body until they were finally unable to stay alive anymore or sometimes they were quickly beheaded just depends now this story is about to turn into a war story I know I've talked about a lot of atrocity and I'm a little late on this but the PG-13 warning because this is a revolution bloodshed but as the humanity archive we can only compare humanity to inhumanity so just remember that earlier I said the Haitian slave always had this song where they vowed and swore to, de- to destroy the whites and all they possess and the time was now so it was here in St. Domingue in 1791 this beautiful island with its mountain ranges and innumerable streams and the tropical valleys and the green hills and lush fields and rippling breezes and mangoes coffee trees a place you would love to call your vacation spot well this paradise was about to turn into an inferno for 12 years 4 months and 1 week and 4 days starting at this very point in history there would be blood there would be destruction there would be war there would be terror there would be violent revolution rebellion revolt and rapaciousness the chickens of slavery were coming home to roost and it begins like something out of a novel but this occurrence was no novelty on a fateful night on the 21st of August in 1791 thousands of black St. Domingue enslaved people attended a secret voodoo ceremony as a tropical storm came in now I'm sorry I know this is getting intense and I'm now like that friend at the movies who butts in to talk at the most suspenseful part in the movie but I just had to stop for a minute there in the story to give a word on voodoo because let's be honest here the very term voodoo has been made taboo some people cringe even if you say it like if you go in front of a mirror and say the word voodoo three times some monster like Candyman is going to appear yet what the average person knows about the religion is full of half-truths when in reality it isn't any different than any other religion in the sense that there are those practitioners who use it for good and there are some who use it for evil take Christianity which has the Jesus love thy neighbor anyone can find redemption story and theme but it also has the fire and the brimstone and the wrath of God and the slave obey your master passages in there people used it for justification for slavery this is why it's so important to employ historical thinking because if you read enough history you'll see there are no pristine traditions all of it is flawed you'll see that even the Buddhists like people think Buddhists are the most peaceful on earth even they're capable of inhumane cruelty just like every other religion humans are capable of the most petty evil in the name of some of the greatest gods no matter what you believe you have to be honest and realize that no religion has a monopoly on peace no religion has a monopoly on love no religion has a monopoly on tranquility just as no religion has a monopoly on violence or justification for war or being used for evil believe what you may now all that said I'm pretty sure that this secret voodoo meeting that took place on that stormy night in the Haitian hills, illuminated by lightning and all this other fantastic stuff. I'm sure in that meeting there was some serious cursing of the oppressor going on. On that fateful night, it was the signal given out by Duty Bookman, one of the first great and fearless leaders of the Haitian Revolution. This is a very fascinating character. I may have to go back and do a prequel on him. He got the name Bookman because he was supposedly carried around his Quran with him. And then whenever his master tried to take it, he uh, burned him. And then he like held this book up to his body and he had the shape of a book on his body where the rest of his body was burned. It's a very fascinating story. Love to tell his story sometime. He's a very pivotal figure in the Haitian Revolution. And then you had those like the high priestess who was there, Cecile Fatiman a female mambo priestess she was there so this tropical storm is raging and the leaders of this revolt are in the mountains above the city of Le Cap where they will start this rebellion and there are incantations and dancing and chanting now this sorcery I won't pretend to understand every part about it but I know that Cecile Fatiman she acted as though she were possessed by the goddess Urzuli and Bookman he sucked the blood of a pig 
Now, I do know this possession and this blood sucking. It involves the belief in the ingestion of a Holy Spirit. It's ritualistic. Its consumption was accompanied by oath taking. And, and they may believe that they were being transformed into a spirit medium. Now, think about the military power in this and think that many of these men were fresh from Africa. They were war chiefs and warriors invoking their gods of war, their goddesses of war. Like Ogun and Shango, who embodied lightning and fire. And this had obvious military significance since some of these Iwa were gods and goddesses of war. And they had these oaths of secrecy to fight to the death. And all this was in these rituals, right? And then when you come out of it, you have this motto. Liberty or la mort. Liberty or death. So after this ritual, Bookman invokes this powerful and ominous prayer to inspire his followers. And he says, quote, the God who created the sun, which gives us light, who rouses the waves and rules the storm, though hidden in the clouds, he watches us. He sees all that the white man does. The God of the white man inspires him with the crime. But our God calls upon us to do good works. Our God, who is good to us, orders us to revenge our wrongs. He will direct our arms and aid us, throw away the symbol of the God of the whites who has so often caused us to weep and listen to the voice of liberty, which speaks in the hearts of us all. Then they descended upon the cap with lifetimes of anger and fury. They murdered their masters. They burned their plantations to the ground. CLR James says, quote, they were seeking their salvation in the most obvious way. The destruction of what was the cause of their sufferings. And if they destroyed much of it was because they had suffered much. They knew as long as these plantations stood, their lot would be to labor on them until they dropped. The only thing was to destroy them from their masters. They had known rape and torture and degradation and at the slightest provocation, death. Now that they held the power, they did as they had been taught. Vengeance, vengeance, vengeance was their cry. Unquote. We're told that even enslaved people who were quote unquote treated well by kind masters, they quickly joined the revolution. Even some mulattoes who had hated the black people, they saw this grand offensive and they were inspired to join against a common enemy. After destroying scores of plantations, the group, which numbered anywhere from a thousand to two thousand historians think. They split into smaller bands to attack designated plantations. And this is where we know that we're dealing something just a bit different from those maroon raids. These aren't just some isolated, disorganized events happening. This is organized strategy. One of the white colonists says, quote, we had learned that a large attack was afoot. But how could we ever have known that there reigned among these men so numerous and formerly so passive, such a concentrated accord that everything was carried out exactly as was declared? The revolt had been too sudden, too vast, and too well planned for it to seem impossible to stop it or even to moderate its ravages, unquote. What's fascinating to me about this is what seems to be this voodoo-inspired heroism. Bookman's enslaved militia was going up against a very well-trained armed force of Frenchmen, people who had fought in other wars, and these were fortified towns, and they attacked them with reckless abandon. I read about one insurgent black soldier who threw himself onto a cannon to be blown up so his comrades could swarm in behind him untouched. Whenever they searched one of the revolutionaries, they found in his vest pocket a pamphlet that literally said on it, The Rights of Man. They also found a large packet of phosphate and lime and a little sack of herbs and bits of bone, which were called a fetish. So something for the mind, the freedom on the brain, something to use as an attack on his enemies with the things for explosives and something for the spirit, which is the bits of bone and these fetishes that they had to kind of invigorate themselves through the spirit. Now, if you ever study the principles of war, you would know that the element of surprise is one of the core principles in almost every army. So the very fact that the French planters believed that slavery would never end, they believed that their slaves were so docile and so obedient to their 
whims and commands that they would never rebel. This worked to the supreme advantage of the revolutionaries. They simply could not believe the slaves would rebel. So when they did, this caused shock, panic, and mass confusion. I spoke earlier about how the brutality of the French slave system, which preferred to work slaves to death and now import new ones from the coast of Africa, worked as part of their demise. A lot of these enslaved people who were coming in had been prisoners of war in their own country, which means that they were former warriors. From places like the Congo, they were veterans. They knew the ways of war. And many of them knew how to use firearms. And these Congolese fighters, they didn't fight like the Europeans in these large units and these military formations in this kind of uh, chivalrous war. They fought the guerrilla warfare. They fought in small autonomous groups. One contemporary said that they didn't even fight exposing themselves as a group, but they spread out like, quote, fanatics, spreading out, positioning themselves in places that made them seem ready to envelop and crush their enemies by their numbers. If they encounter resistance, they don't waste their energy. But if they see hesitation in the defense, they become extremely audacious, unquote. The revolutionaries were nimble. If surprised by an attack, they would retreat. They would take cover, firing from behind rocks and firing from behind shelter. If they were outnumbered, they would retreat from each ambush. They would retreat, fire, retreat, fire. As they retreated, they were losing less men and their enemies were losing more. So they left a trail of Frenchmen following after them. Historian Laurent Dubois said, quote, when they lacked weapons, as they often did, the insurgents used startling rules and ingenuity. They camouflaged traps, fabricated poison arrows, feigned ceasefires to lure the enemy into ambush, disguised tree trunks as cannons. And they threw obstructions of one kind or another into the roads to hamper the advancing troops. Some advancing stood firmly up to three volleys, each of them wearing a kind of light mattress stuffed with cotton as a vest to prevent the bullets from penetrating. Unquote. Very clever. And remember I said revolutions often go with bloodshed like salt goes with pepper. The revolutionaries killed whole families. They raped. They took women against their will as prisoners. Wartime sexual violence seems to be the universal fact of war. With its perpetrators using it to humiliate their enemies. To the victor goes the spoils. Unfortunately, very, very, very unfortunately, a lot of men throughout history have considered the spoils of war to be women. Now again, wars are rarely ever justified, but even when they are, people almost always do unjust things. The Haitian revolutionaries were no different. And we have to realize that any war, no matter how just its reasoning, these civilians, they are the ones who always get the worst end of it. They pay the highest costs. War should never be taken lightly, if not for any other reason than this. We're talking human rights violation after human rights violation. Now, the Haitians also kill people in some very terrible ways. I'm talking about sawing bodies, nailing body parts, heads of white people on pikes. This paradise was turning into a field of carnage. Yet make no mistake, all of this behavior was normalized in war. The white Frenchmen did the exact same things. They had been actually waging this kind of war since they were kidnapping people from the African coastline. Or trading in them, dealing in them, whatever you want to call it. And then there was this fact that some slaves were forced to join the war, even if they didn't want to. If they didn't want to, the Haitian revolutionaries shot them down. So many complexities and aspects to this. But this war was written about in such a way that people said that the hordes of barbarians from Africa had been unleashed on the peaceful planters of the Caribbean. We know this isn't true now, but this is how the history was told for a very long time. And for the longest time, this was the narrative. And this isn't even to say that like all of the whites owned slaves, they didn't. This isn't to say that all the Haitians were committing these atrocities. They weren't. There are countless accounts of enslaved people who had been free who like hid their masters and try to show them sympathy uh, etc etc so you're always going to find in any human experience like those who are committing the atrocity and then those who are trying to push against it or try to ignore it you know there's just different ends of the spectrum but there's always a few who, who try to do the right thing in any situation right there's always choices but at this point the country was 
full of dead bodies. This was a war of extermination. White people started killing anyone black or yellow. The revolutionaries held banners proclaiming death to all whites. Black bodies swayed in the wind, hung from trees on the way to white camps. White heads on pikes with looks of horror frozen on their faces on the way to black military camps. This is all deeply unnerving. I know it. Now I'll admit I have a hard time coming to grips with this kind of terror. What did it look like? What did it feel like? And what did it smell like? You could get PTSD just thinking about this kind of stuff. Now by the end of 1791, this insurrection that happened an estimated 1,000 plantations were burned. 2,000 white people had died and 10,000 black people had died. And it is in within this bloody and gory backdrop that Toussaint Louverture really makes his way into the story. At the time of this revolution, he was already 45 years old. Now at first, Toussaint was very comfortable waiting it out. He didn't get right in, some accounts say. He was protecting his master's plantation and did some very heroic things in the context of keeping his own master's house from burning down. Maybe he was displaying both sides. Maybe he thought it was another maroon raid. I don't know. We'll never know. Maybe he was preparing. But at some point, he must have sensed the winds of change because he sent off his wife and children to a safe place and then he joined the revolutionaries. Now, we don't know if Toussaint was at the ceremony in 1791, but we're told he was a leader in the revolution from the beginning, taking his place among the leadership and starting to rally troops, revolutionaries behind him. This is a great opportunity here to really get to know the man Tucson in only a way that C.L.R. James can tell us. He, in his book, reveals a lot about the man and how he transformed this ragtag bunch of former enslaved people into troops organized and he changed the, the game of this war. It wasn't just going to be a war marked by brutality and raw military strategy in the fight for freedom, but also diplomacy and amnesty and administration and civility. Let's let James, which is such a fascinating scholar. Scholarship is wonderful. Let's let him give us a sense of this remarkable black man named Toussaint Louverture. It was his prodigious activity which so astonished men. No one ever knew what he was doing, if he was leaving, if he was staying, whether he was going, whence he was coming. He had hundreds of thoroughbred horses scattered in stables all across the country, and he habitually covered 125 miles a day, riding far in advance of his guards and arriving at his destination alone or with one or two well-mounted attendants. The inspection of agriculture, commerce, fortifications, municipalities, schools, even the distribution of prizes to successful scholars, he was tireless in performing these duties all over the country. And none knew when and where the governor would appear. He deliberately cultivated this mysteriousness. He would leave a town in his carriage surrounded by his guards, then some miles away he would step out of it and ride in the opposite direction. Even after these lightning dashes across the country, he was able to go into his cabinet and dictate hundreds of letters until far into the early morning. He was as completely master of his body as of his mind. He slept for two hours every night, and for days he would be satisfied with two bananas and a glass of water. In the field he slept dressed, booted, and spurred. In the towns he always kept near his bed a pair of trousers. At all hours, couriers and officers found him ready to receive them with becoming dignity. His control over his soldiers was not due only to his skill as a general. He had that reckless physical bravery that makes men follow a leader in the most forlorn causes. From the beginning of his career to the end, he charged at the head of his men whenever a supreme effort was required. In one battle, he chased the commander alone for nearly a mile and brought back two prisoners and in 10 years was wounded 17 times. He could make soldiers accomplish the seemingly impossible. He seemed to bear charm life. During the civil war against the South, his enemies tried to ambush him twice. The first time, his doctor, who was in the carriage with him, was killed at his side. And the plume of his hat was cut away with a bullet. A little later, on the same journey, his coachman was killed and his carriage riddled with bullets. Only a few minutes before, he had left the carriage and was at the same time riding some distance away. The laborers, in their turn, worshipped him as a direct servant of God.
This is a picture of the man who was Tassan Louvator. Seems to be someone just a little more than human. Now there was a time a Tucson had the last name Brita. But like many people who were enslaved at one point, he sheds that name. And he is going to go by Tucson Louvator. A name he chose for himself. A name which meant the opening. Opening the crossroads of liberty to all former slaves who would join him. He was part of a long legacy of resistance that started well before 1791. He fought because his ancestors had fought. From the coast of Africa, they fought a revolution. On the boats to America, they fought a revolution. In their minds, they fought a revolution. Fought against it by resisting. Fought against it by fighting. Fought against it by suicide. Haitian historian Bayana Bello says, quote, The fight began when the first Africans were kidnapped. The only difference is that Haiti succeeded. At this point in the story, the revolution is spreading at an astonishing rate. It's spreading like a wildfire. And you have this man who almost seems to appear out of nowhere. He almost seems to be perfectly suited and fitted for this situation. Situation being Operation Black Freedom. Fit to navigate not only the battlefield, but the racialized politics of the 18th century dealing with France. Intelligent enough to alternate between diplomacy and military insurgency. Here is how Toussaint makes his own introduction when on August 29, 1793, he sends out this proclamation. He says, quote, I am Toussaint Louverture. Perhaps my name has made itself known to you. I have undertaken vengeance. I want liberty and equality to reign in St. Domingue. I am working to make that happen. Unite yourself with us, brothers, and fight for the same cause. Unquote. It is here that Toussaint declares the reason for this war, and it is to free his people, black people, from enslavement. On this point, there will be no compromise, liberty, or death. That is it, everyone, for part one of this two-part series on Toussaint Louverture. You'll have to join me next time to get the rest of the story. Where we're going to take this and take off from 1791 and beyond and go through the rest of this Haitian Revolution all the way up to 1804. The harrowing story. At times, a horrible story. This story of freedom, this story of diplomacy mixed with military force, mixed with atrocity, mixed with acts of kindness as well. A story from history I'm sure that you've never heard like this. This is Jermaine Fowler with the Humanity Archive podcast. And I invite you right now to go into Apple Podcasts. If you're not already there, subscribe. That way next time the And then when part two comes out, you'll be able to get a little ding on your phone, an alert. It'll tell you it's out, and you could be one of the first ones to listen to it. Also, while you're listening, go ahead and write a review. The more reviews that the show gets, the more it grows, the more it's recognized, the more people are alerted like, hey, this show is something to be listened to. So make sure you do that. It really helps the show out a lot. And finally, if you really want to be a supporter of the show, a friend of the Humanity Archive, and you value the work that I'm doing here, go over to Patreon, sign up. I'm going to be starting to do more and more bonus episodes. I have study guides and all kinds of other cool information that you're not going to get anywhere else. I can promise you that. History that's not going to be told like this anywhere else. I can promise you that as well. I'm so thankful for each and every one of you, each review I get, each listen, every time somebody puts on a set of headphones, every time somebody turns the dial in their car, every time somebody turns on that button on their computer and presses the play button on the Humanity Archive. I thank you. You make the show possible. You keep me going. Join me on social media, Instagram, Facebook. Send me a message. Tell me how you love the show. Engage with me there. And I will see you next time.